The flight deck is made possible by the generous donors supporting the Museum of Flight. You can support this podcast and the Museum of Flight's other initiatives across the United States and the world by visiting museumofflight.org slash podcast. Hello and welcome to The Flight Deck, the podcast of the Museum of Flight in Seattle, Washington. I am your host, Sean Mobley. Today's episode features a conversation with author Phil Stamper. Phil grew up adoring the stories of the space race, and when he decided to write a novel of his own, he chose to take all that he'd learned about the 60s space program and modernize it combining space history with imagination to create his best-selling and critically acclaimed young adult book, The Gravity of Us. Set in the immediate future slash alternative today, the story centers around the sons of two astronauts training for the NASA mission to Mars who fall in love with each other when their families move to Houston to train for their mission. To build out the world of his book, Stamper paralleled and built off the real stories of astronaut family life during the space race while injecting his own hopes that a modern space program will serve as a more complete panorama of the people who make up the United States. In this interview, we discussed the journey of adapting real history into a book for a 2020 teenage audience, the literary inspirations for The Gravity of Us, and the realities LGBTQ plus astronauts faced in NASA history from Sally Ride all the way back to the days of Project Mercury. Writing was never my big thing, but I was always like a huge reader, especially in high school. And really, once I started working in PR um, after college, I I was writing a lot of like press releases and um, they were getting to be kind of boring for me because as a press assistant, all you, all you do is write the same, like very, very dry things over and over and over again about your organization. I had been reading so much at the time and I was reading a lot of young adult fiction because I was a huge dystopian craze at the time, um, like Hunger Games and everything that came from that. I'd read so many books, I thought I could probably do this. Um, and so I started writing my first YA novel and that was about eight years ago, um, that book will never see the light of day. Um, it was a YA dystopian, like every other book that was out there. But eventually, I started writing this book, The Gravity of Us. And um, really, once I sat down and started writing it, I knew that I had come on, come across something really special with what I was writing. Because in this book, I was able to take something that I was so fascinated and interested in, which was the 60s space race and space flight in general, and kind of the whole frenzy around um, around the Mercury missions, the Apollo missions, everything of that era. And I was able to modernize it in a contemporary romance, um, a queer contemporary romance between two boys who are sons of astronauts. And I was able to pack kind of all of my nerdy, fun, anecdotes about the space race, along with just things about social media, which I was super fascinated with, and interesting trends that were going on in the world. And I was just kind of able to make this super relevant, nostalgic novel, if that made sense. And when I wrote it, I was just so happy, because it was like the most fun I'd ever had writing a book. 
And that's really what, when I knew I had, you know, done something special. And of course, it takes 8 million rounds of edits before it even gets sent off to publishers. And then you kind of cross your fingers for months as they decide whether they want to buy it. But I'm so excited that that became my debut novel in the end. And that was the book that got me a book deal uh, because I cared so much about it. And um, it came from such a place of passion for me. Uh, so that's kind of the long answer of how I got to where I'm at now, um, which is actually about to release a second book into the world, um, unrelated to my first. Um, so it's kind of become a whole career that I never intended. Well, congratulations. Thank you. Of course. Now, you've already hit on this a little bit, but just a brief summary of, of the book. How, how would you summarize The Gravity of Us? My explanation is always a little bit different than the one my publisher goes with. I focus on the space nerd part, and my publisher focuses a little bit more on the slice of life part of it. I like to see The Gravity of Us as this um, reimagining of the 60s space race, uh, a present-day reimagining, where two sons of astronauts fall in love while their parents are fighting for the same spot on the world's first human mission to Mars. Our main character in the book, Cal is a social media journalist. He has his whole life planned out for him in New York City. He knows exactly what he wants to do, where he's going to college, which publications he wants to work for, and he really wants to be a journalist. And he's already like well on his way in the social media space um, because he already has a huge, massive following as kind of an influencer who focuses on his own style of reporting. And um, that's all great, except for that his dad is actually suddenly accepted into this space program for the world's first human mission to Mars. And that throws a wrench into his entire plans. And he has to move from New York to Texas to live in this recreation of the 60s space race that NASA has created to kind of play on the nostalgia of the era, but also to bring a new interest into the current spaceflight programs. That that just sparks another question. But before mm-hmm. I move on to this, for people who are considering buying this for their kids or for themselves, mm-hmm. if it were a movie, what, what would you rate it? PG, PG-13? <laughs> um, I mean, so it, technically speaking, like on the back of the book, I think it says 12 and up is kind of the... Uh, the age range for it. It's it's written for teens, but it's I mean it is truly for everyone. Um, and content wise, um, there really no uh, there's nothing in there except for a few curse words. If you are uh, a little averse to that, but that is also how teens talk. So that's um, kind of authentic. So you hit on something there that comes up a lot in your book, which is this kind of nostalgia for the space race of the past and NASA trying to use that to generate interest in the kind of near immediate future space race to Mars. And and you drew on a lot of real history to to make that feel real. So when you're writing a fiction book, how did you and how do you balance the real history, which can be very interesting, but also sometimes very dry? A lot of PR people were involved in NASA <laughs> yeah. to make a good story. If you look at, honestly, any of the documentaries, books, everything from the era, they've dramatized it in a way, like even starting with the right stuff when that came out, they dramatized it in a way that like, it felt like it was a, it was told as if it were a fiction story when in fact, like, you know, it was more or less um, nonfiction um, in in the the right stuff's case. But for other books, it's just, you always have to think about the kind of story that 
you're telling and if you're telling it in a very compelling way. But there were just in this case, because, you know, it's not a historical, it's a present day slash maybe slightly future day version of this, where I, I was able to play on a lot of the things that happened and modernize things that happened in the 60s um, and before. And so I was able to take bits and pieces that I really liked from that era and really tease them out. So like you mentioned press releases. And one funny thing about that was um, you know, there were plenty of press people in NASA at the time. And there were the Life magazine articles that came out with which mostly featured the astronauts and their wives and their families as kind of these celebrities. Um, you had the local news, which were kind of just like annoying fleas that were just everywhere. There were, of course, interviews with the major news organizations all the time. And there were just all these various various competing forms of media. And I really wanted to take that into the present day and say, like, what would be the competing types of media? Because it was a battle for, you know, the Life magazine held these rights so that they can kind of protect the, uh, the astronauts and their wives from the local media who were kind of banging down their door at all times. And so it, there, it was just such a unique way that all of the all of these different forms of media played together. And I wanted to say like, okay, well, today, what would that be? And like, I came to the conclusion that, you know, a lot of it would be driven by social media because uh, that's such a huge form of media. We would still have the um, national media, news media. Um, we'd still have newspapers, still have magazines to some extent. Um, so that's still in play. Um, and then I also added the element of uh, of essentially a reality show or kind of a TMZ almost element to this because my theory was kind of in modernizing this that in the 60s, they made these astronauts and their families into literal celebrities. Like it was the Hollywood of that era. I thought that today they would try to do the same thing. And the only way they could replicate it was to make essentially a real housewives of Houston, Texas. Like it would have to be that kind of energy that you brought into this, um, to this organization, which is funny because now if you look at how they've been kind of treating the Artemis project, um, they, there've been bits and pieces of this where I, I really think I've predicted a little bit of the, the like the future of like how they've been trying to make this super buzzy, how they've tried to invoke the sixties a little bit and get that frenzy in there. And also how they've like Dateline just announced that some company is like going to try and do a, their own reality show based in the winter gets to like go to space or go to the moon or something like this. And it's just like, you could see how, that is that would not be a hard stretch for NASA to go there because NASA needs public support. And one of the best ways to get public support and public talking about you um, would be through, you know, social media, through obviously news and regular media that we're kind of used to. But then also there's something wild, like a reality show that really grabs your attention. When I was modernizing it, that's something that I pulled. It doesn't feel like I pulled it directly, but to me it does because I took the central conflict of the media and I modernized it um, and I took it into the future while still kind of honoring what was at play back then. You hit on something in there about life owning some of the media rights here mm -hmm. or, or back then. So are there any anecdotes like that or any other anecdotes from that era that inspired or 
informed particular sections of the books or any favorite anecdotes of yours? Yeah. So unfortunately, I don't have happy anecdotes, um, but there are ones that inspired the mental health conversations that happened throughout the book. So Cal, the main character's mother, she actually deals with anxiety and, and she is very open with her treatment and she's honest about it. And she is also thrust into the spotlight, just like so many of the astronaut wives were in the 60s. And so I was able to kind of feature a whole conversation about mental health that we just weren't allowed to have in the 60s. And it's really hard to go back and have that conversation now because it's it comes up in various memoirs, specific family members of astronauts who died by suicide because um, they couldn't handle the spotlight or the pressure that was put on them and the what was put on their husbands or uh, or children as well. And so those are the kind of stories that, you know, I look back and I'm like, what would have been different if we could have just said, like, these people are struggling, their husbands are out in space where no one has ever gone before and they're supposed to be like cooking a casserole looking into the camera smiling like i got to have those conversations of like not to like really turn it out and say like look how awful this was because i have such a respect for, for that era and if you read the book you can see just how much i love about it um, but also just to to point out that there were conversations that we weren't having then that we could really have now. And so that was one of my favorite parts. Um, and also with the the love interest, he's going through his own struggles with depression and being in the spotlight for him is really hard when he's constantly overshadowed by his mother, by his dreams that the media have put on him, um, his mother being the, the lead astronaut on this program. And so I got to play around with that a lot and just like have that conversation in a way that we just would never have been able to have it 50 years ago. Yeah, and we've we've explored that a little bit on the podcast, so I'll I'll put some links in our oh, awesome. show notes to any listener who wants to go back and hear some of them. I will go back and, and listen to them all. <laughs> <laughs> uh, one of them was uh, an interview that uh, one of our high school interns did with Pete Conrad's second wife. Oh, that's amazing. Uh, so she she wasn't his wife mm-hmm. during the program, but it's an interesting conversation about the legacy and things like that. So you. Also tried to portray astronauts as a job, which is something that gets always forgotten. We think of astronauts as they show up at NASA and hop into a thing and up they go. Yeah. But you really tried to portray it as a job. Yeah. I mean, that was challenging, too, because the thing is, like, I don't really know what astronauts do now versus 50 years ago, because I realized kind of I was going off of all of the memoirs and stuff that I had read that were like Gene Kranz's memoir and like Jim Lovell and like all these people. I'm like, they haven't worked as an astronaut for a very long time. I did try to hit on like the, what is the job of an, the role of an astronaut now? What do they do in space? How has it changed? And of course it's not, it's not all these air force test pilots now. Um, and so I know that's changed, but I still wanted to have, you know, a character who kind of fit that archetype a little bit. Um, but then I also wanted to show kind of how NASA has changed in, um, you know, just the various kind of types of science uh, that that happen in the world of an astronaut or even in the world of NASA. I mean, it's bizarre how many people talk to me about 
how they wish I had talked more about like soil samples and like there's just one or two scenes where I have like this nerdy geologist talk about soil samples and like how he's working on tests that they will eventually do when they get samples back from Mars. And like, those are the kinds of things that I put in there and I was like, this is way too nerdy even for me. And then of course I get feedback. They're like, I want more. (laughs) Um, And so it's like, it's those kind of roles that like, I, I really wanted to show because I think that is what's fascinating about these missions about these jobs um and then also just like i wanted to show the various roles there were out there like it's it's just it's so different now but then also i feel like we did look into the role of the astronaut so much back then just looking at all of the media and all the interviews and press tours and everything i mean i've always have such a soft spot for kind of mission control and the people who were on those teams as well. And so that's where I came from when I was exploring everyone's jobs, especially within NASA's doors. You talked about the families being under the microscope and and being these celebrities during the Apollo era. And I'm getting on my soapbox a little bit here. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But I argue that the Apollo era astronauts were meant to be consciously and and unconsciously kind of this this best of America, this this ideal American, Mm -hmm. right? Because they were they were the Cold War heroes, the the best of America going up against the best of the Russians and may the best man win. Yeah. <laughs> and like you said, they accomplished great things at the same time, just due to a variety of circumstances and conscious decisions. They were, like you said, they were all military test pilots. Uh, they were all men. They were all white. So what we were saying in the Apollo era, again, consciously and, and unconsciously, is that this this is our ideal, right? This is our representative on the intergalactic stage. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and over time, that's changed, of course, actually pretty quickly, right? NASA did a lot of work heading into the shuttle era to change that. It took us still a, a lot of time and a lot of work. Yeah. And then now your characters, right? They represent a next generation. And we're also seeing this with the Artemis program. Mm-hmm. I will be shocked if the first person, the next person to step on the moon is not a woman. Yeah. Uh, which is all another conversation. But but how do you see your characters as kind of fitting into this evolution of our thought of being an ideal American? Yeah, I, I mean, I really wanted to, to challenge that from the beginning. The space race was not a very representative time. A group of people, at least, um, was not super representative of what America really was. But that was what NASA told America was America like they, they it was the perfect American family um, and that's just I mean that's what the media kind of demanded at that point anyway it was you know a, a normal for them like that their version of normal was this um, kind of cookie cutter white straight family two kids uh, you know like that was just what was kind of expected and so these astronauts all looking the same that really played into that fervor and like the, in the more you learn about the era the like the ickier it, it gets that's something that kind of like disappointed me through my research um was like you'll hear a lot of people say in their interviews and in their memoirs that the civil rights uh, movement happened at the same time that the nasa program was happening but nasa was just so focused on getting to the moon that they just like missed it like as if it was it just happened in the background and they were like oh crap we missed uh, this huge movement when actually it was that nasa was actively excluding people there are plenty of stories about how exactly they were being excluded and um, not none of them are are really great to hear now 
And so I'm glad that they're being brought to light in various different ways and different uh, documentaries. I think the the more recent documentaries have also been better at showing, you know, the little diversity that was even in the control rooms. And I think that that is something that I wanted to to show a stark difference in my book, um, because I think that, like as you said, starting with the um, shutter program and moving forward, they really did start to care about diversity in a way that that was kind of not noticed for a while. I guess, like even when I saw the Challenger documentary that re- recently came out, um, I was surprised at the diversity of the crew and the other crews that were uh, that were there, just because I didn't know as much about that era, and I just kind of assumed I know. Sally Ride. I know a few women who had been part of it, but um, beyond that, I didn't know much. So it was really nice to um, see that there was some kind of commitment that like led us into this current era. But for the purposes of my novel, um, I really wanted the lead astronaut to be a black woman, and I, I, I that was something I did with intention, um, and that was something that like I really wanted her in that position of power where she knows how to work with the media she knows how to play her role not only in the cockpit but like also on the stage because she would have to she would be held to higher scrutiny than the kind of straight white male astronauts who there are a couple in the book as well Um, and I really wanted to put them together specifically working together like to have the same goal to like make sure that this was a diverse cast but also to show that like there's only a benefit in having diversity. I mean, it is a small cast for the book. Like you don't get to know everyone in NASA by any means, but I tried to kind of put as much diversity in there to really show what America is like now and what America's space program should be like now. Um, and I think it it is for sure, uh, especially like with what you said, meeting the next person to land on the moon will almost certainly be a woman. But I I think we also have to go beyond that and make sure that every single program that we launch and that we talk about has a diverse crew. We can't fall back into those 60 stereotypes of like what the perfect family is, because, you know, if we do that, then what were the last 50 years of work for? And I hope something people are picking up from this conversation is that it is okay to have a lot of respect for accomplishments while still critiquing them with some pretty valid critiques. Yeah. I mean, like they, they, of course they did, they did amazing things back then. And um, a part of why they did it was because they were so laser focused on it, but you know, there are many stories out there of how they specifically excluded, you know, certain astronaut candidates. I have done so much research, but I had no idea about the women that they piloted for the, the Mercury test program yep mercury 13 yeah the mercury 13 i had no idea about that until like six months ago and i was like how did and i've done so much research like how did i not pick up on that or know anything about that and then of course the whole story with ed dwight a black man who was led on to kind of believe he was going to be a candidate and was really just kind of treated poorly and then completely excommunicated and so it's just those kind of stories show that like they were not in the right mindset for for diverse conversations because they were so laser focused on their goal and like that's wonderful that they achieved it but we can achieve so much more now that we actually have these conversations at least i think so now we just need more lgbtq people in space i think we don't have that conversation quite as much either but that's obviously important and 
would not have been possible in the 60s for sure yeah, we'll get back to that in a second but uh, there, there's also a book uh, the mercury 13 by martha ekman i believe hmm. that if people want to learn a bit more about that and then of course we did a two episode podcast uh, look at that couple a year or so ago so i'll link that in the show notes too i didn't realize there was a book that's amazing i'm gonna read that yeah because i I feel like i I have a whole shelf of of, of books from (laughs) um this era so i I, i'm really excited about adding that to my list now that's amazing it's uh it's impossible to know everything so don't feel too bad (laughs) (laughs) Uh, and then i think the astronaut wives club i believe is is the main book out there about uh mm-hmm. the wives obviously of the astronauts <laughs> that was the one where I, I first got the idea to write this book because in the book they call the kids astro kids that was like my working title for this book for so long even though like i, I knew it would work for a teen audience because they're not kids they're teens and it sounds like a middle grade fantasy or something <laughs> but we never talked about the, the kids either like we we didn't talk about the we talked about the wives because they were famous and they were on the covers of magazines and they were juggling the kids um, and they had a really hard time i was like well i'm writing books for teens like what if i featured a story like this with teens um, because like the unique perspective the unique pressures that are put on teens in general are out, totally out there uh, but when your parents are literal astronauts like i can't imagine <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned lgbt representation in space history and it's it's hard to talk about that impossible to talk about that without talking about sally ride yes. she came out so quietly <laughs> that a, most people don't know that she Still, was yeah yeah it was it was in her her obituary is that how yeah she came out and that that was her intention which like i I mean i'm so glad that she was able to come out in the way that she wanted to um because i think that's super important because i I don't feel like anyone should have pressured her to do otherwise but it it didn't get as much attention as i feel like it should have and there was Um, backlash after she came out from lgbt advocacy groups i mean she was dead what did she care about the backlash (laughs) sure she was really upset yeah, there was backlash saying she should have come out earlier. Of course, it's so hard to to like think. Oh well, what what would have happened if she would have come out earlier? Wouldn't that have been a huge thing for um, the queer community? And like maybe, but if she doesn't didn't feel safe coming out or didn't want that focus on her, then that's her. Like that's her choice. Like that's the only one who should be coming out is the person who wants to come out when they are ready. I'm glad that this wasn't something that was like uncovered 50 years later something that was like that could still be relevant for today and important for today and like she didn't it wasn't just like brushed off you know i wish that was in more conversations um i guess i always find it coming at it from the museum perspective just an interesting museum puzzle of how to represent a legacy of a person like her because always in museums you want to be very careful about looking at people of the past and she is past. So she Mm -hmm. is a person of the past through a lens of today. So how to represent her legacy where her identity was both central to who she was. Otherwise she wouldn't have kept it hidden, but also clearly something that she kept hidden for good reason. So it's not, it's not about wanting to keep it hidden. She came out clearly, clearly this is something she did want out there, but how to represent that in a museum setting without making it the focal point, but also still making the conversation about maybe why she wouldn't have come out a focal point. It's just a very complicated and you got to do it in a sentence because that's all people will read in a museum. So, right. Yeah. I mean, that's like, it's a very like challenging 
topic and needs a lot of nuance. And um, yeah, you don't get a lot of nuance in one line. Um, so, Going back to what we were talking about with the Apollo astronauts needing to be this kind of perfect ideal, it, when you're talking about Sally Ride and the fact that she, well removed from the Apollo era, still felt the need to keep it a secret um, for years. I mean, she was in a relationship with Tam O'Shaughnessy uh, her her partner for for decades uh, by the time she had died it just it it always makes me look back on that apollo era and how perfect these families had to be and just make me wonder you know i don't i have no evidence to say that any of these mercury or apollo or gemini astronauts were anything but straight men but it just the 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 laser focus they were under the microscope Right. makes you wonder that if they weren't, would there even be a shred of evidence? Because they were, if nothing else, they were purpose-driven. <laughs> and they knew that in order to get to space, they needed to be married and needed to stay married and needed to be happy yeah. and needed, again, be that ideal American. It's it's just one of those history... I won't even call it a mystery because that makes me makes it sound like I suppose anything, which I don't. But I just wonder... I mean, I mean, chances are, yeah, I'm sure somebody involved with the program was queer in some way, but there's obviously no way to prove it. But also they weren't comfortable even understanding it potentially. Like it, it's, it's just, it's such a, it's such a, a dicey topic because we're like looking back 50, 60 years ago where it's just, it was not a conversation that could happen in most spaces. And all of these, um, most of the astronauts came from, Ohio and Indiana um, and like I'm, I'm from Ohio I was raised there and I was born in 88 and I still was not really able to come out in my own terms like in a way that I was like happy with it wasn't the time nor the place I guess um, so it's something that we'll just never know um, and so it, it's it's a shame because you don't want to yeah I don't know I don't know it's 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 sad at least people nowadays overall in the world are able to be who they are a little bit more um and that's not the case for everyone i know but it, it is for sure the case looking back over the last 60 years um there's been a ton of progress in the world and so one would assume that progress would extend to the artemis missions or you know the, these these um kind of new frontiers that we're looking at We've talked a lot about space, yes. <laughs> but at the heart of your book is a romance between two young men and mm -hmm. LGBT characters in fiction. They've tended to, to need to be punished, mm. right? That's that's the approach that's kind of happened in movies and in books. Yeah. I, I just read a book from World War II written by an author where uh, at the end, oh, the gay no. character commits suicide. <laughs> I mean, it, that, that is not uncommon in fiction. Yeah. Do you mind talking a little bit about that history and, and what yeah. you wanted to accomplish going into this story? There's a place for all sorts of LGBTQ stories and, and experiences. Um, I, I just know that like the only ones I was able to see and experience for so long were ones where the, the queer character died, either by suicide or by a hate crime situation. Um, you know, I mean, I was... I turned 18 and Brokeback Mountain came out and that was like our only representation in big movies, you know, ended with the 
presumed hate crime and people who couldn't be who they were. So like that was the story that we were given. And it's, it's always just this tragic story. And like there are places for tragic stories for sure. Um, because, you know, you can't only have happy stories because that's not how life works. Um, and sometimes there are lessons to be learned um, and some empathy to be learned. But those were widely written for a straight, non-queer audience. You know, it wasn't until I was in college that I, I watched the first movie where they ended up happy in the end. And they were it was it was a romance, but I always kind of had my guard up of like, okay, like, but then what happens? Like, who runs away? Who dies? Who, like, what's what's going to happen? Um, and then, it, like, I was just, like, filled with so much joy when they were happy in the end. They, like, they overcame their obstacles and they were together. And it was the first time I ever, ever seen that in any sort of media. It was really after that point that there was a shifting point in my life where I was like, oh, that this is an actual possibility. Because if you're only shown stories where, the queer people die or have to go into the closet forever or have these awful experiences, you think that's your only experience, which is just not the case. So that's why I really wanted to write this story and make it just full joy, like queer joy. I wanted two boys to fall in love rather quickly. And like, I didn't want it even to be a will they, won't they? Like they're, they do, they will. It's on the cover. Like you see it, like, you know, that they're, they're going to have their challenges, but like, it is a lot, it's a romance. It's going to fit the norms of the romance genre, which is they're happy. It's a hopeful, joyous, joyous story. Even if there are low moments, I wanted to make sure that I was writing something that queer teens could read and know that they were safe while reading, know that they didn't have to have their guard up just in case something disastrous happened. And that was just kind of what I needed to write at that moment. Not all my books are going to be that happy. They'll all be hopeful in some way, for sure. But I just think that in YA fiction, especially, we've been able to tell a lot of diverse queer stories, intersectional queer stories, which are amazing, where, you know, you get so many different experiences on the page and on the shelves. And like, you can walk into a bookstore and you can see, you know, queer people thriving on bookshelves, which is like something that we didn't get even five years ago almost. And so that's really something that was important to me while writing this, um, while publishing this, while promoting this. It's that same kind of joy that I get when I watch like Schitt's Creek, because that was such just a, a joyous show with no homophobia, even though it's set in a rural area. And like, it's just those kind of joyous pieces of media that like really stick with you. And that's what I was kind of intending with this. And and I think that that's not the only thing that needs to be written. Like there there are so many different experiences, um, happy and sad, tragic. Uh, that you know I want to read. I want to I want to see those stories. I want to like I want to learn more. I want to be put in uh, so many different people's shoes. But we can't only have the tragic narratives because if we do that, then especially teens will only see their their lives ending up tragically, which is just not the case. Um, and that's what I went through when I was a teen and what I want to make sure that like teens today don't experience in the same way if I can't help it. <laughs> so do you think things are changing? Um, I, you know, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> things have changed. Yeah. That, that's my big hopeful note at the end. Um, no, I, Yes, I, th- I think ch- things have changed so much, but I think there's still so much work to be done that it's hard to, I, I mean, it, it's hard to say. 
that, you know, there's that we're definitely on the right path. Like we're going to always have to keep fighting one interesting, but I think in some ways, wonderful thing about all of the the pride marches being canceled this year or pride parades being canceled this year because of COVID um, was that they all, uh, they actually turned into pride marches because it overlapped with the death of George Floyd. Um, and we were able to kind of go back to the roots of why we had these pride protests and marches. And it's these, uh, these are, protests that are like led by usually black queer people who have like led the charge for us for so long and i think that was one thing that was really distancing us from each other in our own communities and so now i feel like we are on a better path of fighting for our rights and not just kind of taking the comforts that we have taking the like one or two happy stories and like clinging to them and i think as long as we can keep fighting with our fellow queer people um, of all identities and all um, races and genders and everything that will really be able to move forward. But it's slow. I mean, I always wish it would happen faster, but that's just not how not how the world works, it seems. Maybe if anything can get us united again, it's going back to space. <laughs> I, that's what NASA would say. Uh, <laughs> and you know what? I, I agree. I'm ready for it. Let's Let's do this. <laughs> Well, thank you, Phil, so much for your time today. Yeah, thank you. This was great. Thanks for tuning into this episode of The Flight Deck, the podcast of the Museum of Flight in Seattle, Washington. Thanks especially to those who've been able to sustain the podcast through their financial contributions to the Museum of Flight. You keep this podcast and so much more going. You can learn how to support the podcast in our show notes. If you want to read The Gravity of Us, I have a few links in the show notes. You can, of course, purchase the book at the Museum of Flight's online store and have it shipped right to you. Doing so supports the museum's mission and also supports independent retail. If not through us, I hope you'll find an independent bookstore to purchase from if you want to buy a copy. Friends of the show, Emily Calkins and Britta Barrett from The Desk Set, which is the podcast of our local library system here, the King County Library System, have graciously made a list, including The Gravity of Us and all the other books that Phil and I referred to during this episode. I will drop a link in the show notes. And this is great even if you're not a local resident here in King County because you'll have a nice reading list of history and, and fiction books that you can look up at your own library if you want to learn more about any of the topics we discussed from space race history to LGBTQ plus stories in fiction. Thank you so much to the King County Library System for joining forces on this list. And if you're looking for other great reads on any subject, whether you're a local resident here or not, give the desk set a listen. They have a great collection of episodes now, including episodes featuring books about the outdoors or true crime or or food, and author talks, and, and much more. I'll include a link to their show in the show notes, and also include a link to an episode in our own podcast's archives, where they join me to talk about book recs for space and science fiction. I've also included some links to Phil Stamper's website and social media channels in the show notes, if you want to check them out. This is a link-happy episode. <laughs> The Museum of Flight, of course, has several exhibits on the space program from the early days to today, so on your next visit, 
make sure you stop into our Apollo Gallery and to the Charles Simone Space Gallery to learn more about the stories that inspired the gravity of us and get some inspiration of your own on where space exploration might take us and maybe even you in the near future. If you enjoyed what you heard, one of the greatest compliments you can pay it is to share this show out. Maybe you know a librarian or a teacher or a book lover or have a young adult in your life who would appreciate hearing this interview. By all means, share and spread the word. And if you joined us today specifically because you're interested in Phil Stamper and his book, I hope you'll stick around and check out some of our other podcast episodes. Most of them aren't author talks like this, but if you like this episode, I am sure you'll find stories on our podcast that you'll enjoy. I'll throw some links to some of my personal favorite episodes in this episode's show notes if you want some ideas of where to start, because we don't have enough links already. (laughs) Please subscribe to the podcast to keep up to date with our episodes, and you can rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you downloaded us from. You can email the show at podcast at museumoflight.org. Until next time, this is your host, Sean Mobley, saying to everyone out there on that good earth, we'll see you out there, folks. <laughs>